I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022, the 651st day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. You'll be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on Rumble and a variety of podcast platforms. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. So let's pick up where we left off yesterday in regard to the election in Brazil. This is Vish Burra from last night in the National Pulse. Brazilian patriot protests rage in the face of corrupt elections and media smears. Remind you of anything? In the wake of Sunday's presidential runoff in Brazil, the contest between former president of Brazil, Lula, and current president of Brazil, the wildly popular Jair Bolsonaro, 
has been upended by massive protests and unrest as the tabulation of the results currently show Lula leading Bolsonaro by a hair under two percentage points. This mass civil unrest has been in the making, arguably since the day Bolsonaro announced his candidacy in 2016, and definitely since he won the presidency in 2018. The globalist Marxist resistance to Bolsonaro's presence at the highest level of Brazilian politics has been unflinching and unrelenting, mostly directed by the hopelessly corrupt Supreme Court of Brazil. And it's worth noting, he just said, globalist Marxist. Sounds a lot like global communist, doesn't it? At every turn, Bolsonaro has faced stonewalled opposition to his attempted service toward the citizens of Brazil. Now, with the endless questions about the electoral integrity of runoff results in this most recent election, in a country notorious for fraudulent elections in the first place, Bolsonaro's supporters have decided to take matters into their own hands. They are hoping their mass uprisings across the country will energize Bolsonaro to take control of the increasingly deteriorating situation. On Monday evening, I started to receive footage and reports from contacts in Brazil about the situation, with claims that real news was being actively buried by their media. Some went as far as to say that the protests and unrests were fake. The footage I began publishing to my Twitter feed, now risibly tagged with a misleading label, was aimed at eliminating this notion. And Vishbura has had some really great threads on Twitter showing a lot of the protesting and covering the civil unrest in Brazil. So if you are on Twitter, Vish Burra, V-I-S-H-B-U-R-R-A, is a good follow. And I'll get to more about Twitter later. The footage starts with a Brazilian gentleman stating in Portuguese that truck drivers had commenced major protests and that some Brazilian military officers and units had begun to join them. Reports circulated alleging that federal SWAT police, the national force, Sao Paulo civilian police, national road police and military police had started joining the protesters in providing logistical and operational support for them. We then began to hear that pro Bolsonaro protesters were blocking the roads to Sao Paulo International Airport, as well as other major routes. Truck drivers, construction workers, and farmers got in on the protests too, using their equipment to blockade roads to airports and also key roads that carried food from the Brazilian agricultural heartland to major metropolitan centers in Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. The activity taken holistically with the military and police actions above can be interpreted as nothing short of a working class rebellion against questionable results being given to the citizens of Brazil. This energetic series of events raises the question, what is the intended result of these uprisings? The answer is a lot simpler than one might think. The pro-Bolsonaro protesters coordinated the protests and uprisings to convince the military to join them in contesting the results of the questionable election with its demonstrable irregularities. They hope that by coordinating mass demonstration, they can enlist local police support and leverage that to signal to the military that they need to support Bolsonaro. This, in turn, would embolden Bolsonaro himself. It is important to note that there are virtually no mechanisms to audit or recount election results in Brazil, except if the challenge is brought by a supermajority of the Brazilian Senate, which Bolsonaro is poised to have in January, should he successfully contest the results of this election. Protesters feel military support for any action contesting the election results is therefore key. 
The people hoping the Brazilian military would read the signal have been served with their first major roadblock. Bolsonaro, without saying he's conceding or accepting the tabulated results of the election, promised to do what is lawful, having no means to stop the Lula team from filing the transfer documentation required to begin the transition to the Lula presidency. Sources on the ground suggest the pro-Bolsonaro protests failed to muster up the support needed to enlist the top brass so far with the reasons twofold. One, the military brass is not concerned about Bolsonaro, the citizens of Brazil, or anything beyond their pensions. And two, the corrupt Supreme Court is likely to pursue challengers. Lula's previous administration was notorious jailing geriatric military leaders at the time under the guise of human rights violations. In the case that the military brass did secure such guarantees, as all political maneuvering is intended to do, they may alert Bolsonaro that he does not have their support to contest the results and that Bolsonaro's best bet is to begin the transfer of government. Such a move would be a monumental setback for the burgeoning nationalist populist movements worldwide. This is probably the toughest problem Bolsonaro faces, though some still hold on to hope. Bolsonaro recently said the protests are legitimate, and this legitimization allows demonstrators to continue and intensify their work, even as the Lula clique tries to weasel its way into transition. If Lula reassumes the presidency, his likely first orders of business will be to bless an already runaway judiciary to come completely off the chain and start the political persecution of the pro-Bolsonaro groups, including truck drivers, farmers, construction workers, police, and military personnel. This is the first domino. The weaponized judiciary of Brazil will persecute congressmen, senators, ministers, and inevitably Bolsonaro himself. The regime must reclaim its legislative and bureaucratic apparatus in the wake of an otherwise successful election for Bolsonaro's party and ruling coalition. The only thing standing in its way, ordinary patriotic Brazilians. And Burra, who is the former producer for the War Room, producer Vish, was on the War Room this morning talking about this people's uprising and saying we may be looking at a Brazilian spring. I hope that's followed by an American spring. Another great account to follow, particularly if you're on Telegram, is Paul Serin. He pointed to this article from October 11th in Reuters. The headline is Brazil Court Presses Military on Review of Voting System. Document shows Brazil's federal audit court, the TCU, asked the defense ministry on Tuesday to provide its report on Brazil's electronic voting machines used during this month's election, which President Jair Bolsonaro has attacked baselessly as vulnerable to fraud. And they are referring, of course, to the first round of the election. The TCU sought a copy of the report in a request seen by Reuters and said that after a military inspection of the voting machines on Election Day, quote, State security will be strengthened with the disclosure of such information. And this is something we've seen parallels to in the United States as well. Officials and organizations known to be corrupt saying that it's in the interest of the country and the interest of the people that they be privy to the information that may well show the crimes being committed and might clue them into plans to correct the situation. That's basically what the entire January 6th committee was for. The TCU press office confirmed it had made the request. 
The defense ministry and presidential press office did not reply to requests for comment. Brazilian media reported the defense ministry has refused to disclose the findings of its review or comment on its status. Newspaper O Globo reported on Tuesday that the ministry had told Bolsonaro that the inspection of the results from 385 machines had found nothing irregular and that the president had not authorized a public disclosure of their findings. And we can definitely trust that because the media never lies. The O Globo report in a column was based on the accounts of three unnamed generals, one of whom said Bolsonaro had asked the military to look further for irregularities. Bolsonaro told reporters he had not received the document and called the media reports an invention. So let's compare once again to our situation, imagining Bolsonaro as a parallel to Donald Trump. How often have we heard that three unnamed generals said something? Three unnamed officials, an official close to the situation, an official familiar with the situation, an official with knowledge of the situation. They can basically make up anything at that point. And of course, we know when the two sides are not Republican, Democrat, they're not, for instance, and the two sides are actually sovereign nationalist versus global communist. We understand that people are speaking on behalf of their factions and when they are not willing to have their names published and not willing to be accountable for their comments, there's no reason to believe that these three generals are speaking honestly if there even are three generals. There are plenty of former members of the Trump administration who are saying things that are completely opposite to the observable reality and they're saying them because they are incentivized to say them in order to harm Donald Trump. The parallel situation does exist in Brazil, and there's no reason to believe that Bolsonaro was told there was nothing irregular or that he in any way would accept that result from whoever told it to him just because three unnamed sources said so. The far-right populist president has criticized the electronic voting machines and the Supreme Court justices that run the National Electoral Authority for opposing a return to paper ballots. There has never been fraud detected in the electronic system, and Bolsonaro has failed to present new evidence of such a risk. And there you have it. Reuters, the mouthpiece of the global propaganda apparatus, has now declared that there is no evidence of any problem with the electronic voting machines in Brazil, just like there's no evidence of any problem with the electronic voting machines in the United States, except all of that evidence that has been put out there, much of it public at this point and widely reported, in addition to the litany of prominent Democrats and experts who have also talked about how vulnerable the election machines are. But none of that meets Reuters' very high standard for evidence. It's not like three unnamed sources told them. It's just everyone who's ever looked at the machines, including the people who designed the machines and the code, who are on video talking about how the machines can alter votes. But again, no evidence, baseless claims. We have to be responsible until all the facts come in. Bolsonaro has charged that the justices favor his leftist rival, former President Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, 
stirring fears that he could contest the result if he is defeated. Lula led the first round of the presidential election with 48% of the votes to Bolsonaro's 43%, and the race now goes to an October 30th runoff vote. So there was a five-point difference between them in the first round, and that difference closed to two points in the runoff. But Lula also got 13 million more votes than Bolsonaro's opponent in 2018, and there are about 5 million or so votes that were ruled invalid or null. No evidence, baseless claims. Gotta be responsible until all the facts come in. Have all the facts come in? Has anyone verified that the election machines actually do work in the way they're supposed to work, in the way we are told that they do work? No, of course that has not happened. But that doesn't matter because we are told the default position is that our elections are run perfectly to the point where world leaders do not even need to wait for the facts to come in. They know within minutes of the media announcing that Lula was the winner, that Lula must be the winner, even though they planned months ago to quickly confirm the results of another country's election after meeting with Lula and delegations from Brazil. After outperforming most polls in the first round, Bolsonaro has muted his criticisms of the voting system. TSE electoral officials agreed to military involvement in vetting the security of the electronic voting machines and making spot checks of their results on election day. The TSE has said it has not heard from the defense ministry of its findings after the vote. The TCU audit court, which reports to Brazil's Congress, also audited the results of 4,000 electronic voting machines in state capitals across Brazil and found no differences with the official TSE results. And of course, we know how the audits of voting machines work. The defense ministry has 15 days to reply to the TCU request for its report. Now, I don't know if that has happened or not. The 15 day window has certainly expired. If there is news out there that that report was turned over, I can't find it. And if one of you has, please send it my way. So speaking of waiting for all the facts to come in, it's kind of a sliding scale. You have to wait for all the facts to come in if the story isn't going the way you want it to. Otherwise, you say that all the facts are in and then refuse to look at any more facts for the rest of time if any additional facts might make the story more difficult to believe. And next Tuesday night, we're going to experience both of these phenomena at the exact same time. We will be told in certain places that all the facts have come in. The election was perfect and now it's over and cannot be questioned while other facts are still coming in from other places. The Washington Post decided to make this clear today. The headline here is, why we might not know the results on election night and why it matters. It's an important point. We likely won't know all the midterm election results on Tuesday night due to a combination of factors, including states' election rules, the pace of ballot counting, including mail-in and absentee ballots, which are much harder to count, takes a very, very long time, potential automatic recounts, and potential challenges to the results. But if there are any challenges by Republicans, 
claiming obvious election fraud. Those will be categorized as election denial, and no one is allowed to pay attention to those. If Democrats are challenging races somewhere, well, then we have to wait for all the facts to come in. All things that are normal to the process, election experts emphasize, and apparently complete sentences are just not important in this article. But in a post-2020 world in which election denialism is alive and well among Republicans after former President Donald Trump stoked mistrust of the electoral system with false claims of fraud, any uncertainty or delay has the potential to spark chaos. That's particularly true if the battle for control of either chamber is close. That's right. We're going to deny that an election happened. We're not pointing out that a crime was committed because... A few years ago, we were told that we have to believe victims at all times. And if the American people discover that they are victim to election fraud, well, then you're just denying that an election happened. You see, it's totally normal for election results to take sometimes days, sometimes weeks to come in accurately. You have to wait till all the facts come in. And that's true, even though it didn't used to be that way at all until two years ago. And it's true, even though Brazil can reach a final vote tally within just hours of polls closing in a country where 120 million people just voted on Sunday or so we're told. It's true because they say so. Now, will Big states like Texas and Florida have their results in the night of the election. Of course they will. But that's just because they don't have all the reasons that other states have that make elections take a really long time. Remember in 2020, we were told that we had to wait because mail-in ballots might continue arriving days after, even though they were postmarked on time. And it turned out that after the election, as those mail-in ballots kept coming in, then we were told that the postmarks actually don't matter and they're not checking the postmarks because they don't matter. It's important to count all votes. And if the votes don't have signatures or they have other errors on the ballot so that the ballots do not comport with the law, that doesn't matter either. We're just waiting for all the facts to come in. We're waiting for all the ballots to come in. And you have to count all the ballots, whether or not they're legal. And if they're not legal and we count them, you can't challenge them and you can't even look. That's why we tell you about how there are going to be problems in advance so that when the problems happen, people can already tell you that those problems are invalid and cite the Washington Post story on why the elections would take a really long time. Control of the Senate might not be clear for days or even a month. According to the Washington Post, control of the Senate might not be clear for a month. Georgia, in one of the tightest Senate races in the country, candidates must receive at least 50% of the vote plus one vote to win. As happened in the 2020 election, it's likely that neither Senator Raphael Warnock nor his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker, will reach that threshold. So expect a runoff election on December 6th. It doesn't matter what the polls say, apparently. Governor Brian Kemp is favored by 10 points over Stacey Abrams in Georgia. How is it that the Senate race is then expected to go to a runoff? Are people going to vote for Kemp and Warnock? 
No, there is absolutely no chance that describes a real voter. What issue in a voter's mind is going to separate Kemp and Walker? Is it abortion? No. Do people who like Warnock just not like Stacey Abrams? No. Is it a race thing? Well, Walker and Warnock are both black Americans, so it can't be that. What kind of voter is going to vote for Brian Kemp and not Herschel Walker? The truth is that they know that Raphael Warnock is going to lose in Georgia, and they want to set up a scenario where he can have a do-over a month later, just like he had in 2020. Pennsylvania, another race that could determine the Senate. It just says Senate. This is just terrible writing. I mean, who even produces these? Another race that could determine Senate might not be decided on election day. (laughs) It's unbelievable. That's because the state led by the Republican legislature implemented a law that prevents the state from counting mail-in votes until the day after election day. Counting could take days and the vote tallies could shift from candidate to candidate throughout the process. You got that? So the provision put in so that the communists running the elections in Pennsylvania couldn't calculate the mail-in vote in advance so they would know how to fill out the rest of the vote to achieve the results they need are now going to take the period after the election to achieve the same goal. And even though this is the first time that's happened, it's totally normal. Why is it totally normal? Because the Washington Post says so. And why does the Washington Post say so? Because there's no other way to give them the time to make up the vote they need unless the Washington Post tells people this is what's going to happen and it's totally normal. Arizona, the swing state is home to highly competitive Senate and governor's races, and they might not be decided right away. Well, that is categorically false. Carrie Lake has now had multiple polls that show her 11 points up over Katie Hobbs. And even CNN is asking Katie Hobbs why she won't debate. In fact, check it out so you can hear it for yourself. Not debate your opponent. If you believe your opponent is, you know, has issues in the spreading conspiracy theories about a stolen election and so Mm -hmm. on, and it's not being truthful with the, the people of Arizona, why then not get on the debate stage and and debate her? You know, not only is Carrie Lake, has she centered her entire platform around this election denialism, um, I didn't want to give her a bigger stage to do that. But additionally, she has shown that she's not interested in having any kind of substantive conversation. Um, she's only interested in creating a spectacle. But and I didn't you, if want you to were be... in the same space with her, wouldn't, you be, wouldn't it be easier to knock it down in front of everyone, in front of the most people? Because you're not stopping her from spreading yeah. whatever you believe that you she know, is I... spreading. By not debating her, she can go on television, she can talk about it, she can go in front of the, the people of Arizona every single day and talk about it, but you're not confronting her on it. And it seems like it would be an easy fix if you stood up on a debate stage and, and confronted her about these issues. Look, we're six days out from the election and our campaign strategy is our campaign strategy. So we're moving forward. I'm continuing to make my case to the voters of Arizona, uh, whether or not uh, we debated in this race is not going to decide this election. So, um, you know, I just we made a decision, didn't want to be a part of her spectacle. And she's not uh, she she won't answer these tough questions um, to to real reporters. She only talks but, to fake but secretary. News it's not. 
So that is stinky finger Don Lemon in his new time slot in the morning on CNN, sandwiched between Caitlin Collins, the former White House reporter that used to be so annoying in all of the Trump press conferences and some other millennial Karen on his other side. Katie Hobbs says Carrie Lake is afraid to answer substantive questions from real reporters. Katie Hobbs is scared to answer anything from Carrie Lake. And by the way, Carrie Lake has gone on CNN. Is Katie Hobbs saying that CNN's reporters are not substantive? Because otherwise she's just lying. But back to the Washington Post. Arizona primarily votes by mail. And in 2020, it took time to count all the mail-in ballots. That's what happened. Remember? Remember when Fox News at about 8.30 p.m. on election night said they were calling Arizona for Joe Biden and then retracted that and then it took four days? Well, the Washington Post knows that its readers do not remember that and they only remember the last part, that Arizona took a few days for some reason. And now that that reason is baked into the cake, the fact of the matter is Arizona will always take a long time. Arizona's Republican legislature also eased the threshold for an automatic recount to 0.5% after the 2020 election, making a recount more likely. This does not make a recount more likely because there's absolutely no reason to believe these elections will be that close. But of course, they want to make you think that it'll be that close because they want the extra time. We will have no idea who is won on election night. Adrian Fontes, the Democratic nominee for Arizona Secretary of State. Apparently, they don't need the word said anywhere in this article. I mean, did someone write this up while driving? He's locked in a tight race against Republican Mark Fincham, who's refused to accept the 2020 election results. Fontes said Republicans are advising voters to turn in their mail-in ballot on election day. They've created another part of the system in pushing their people to vote late, Fontes said. That creates more uncertainty. They created another part of the system. They've created more uncertainty. What is more uncertain about that? Adrian Fontes is the former Maricopa County recorder. He was intimately involved in implementing the election fraud apparatus in Arizona responsible for stealing the 2020 election in Arizona. More states, more waits. Wisconsin is another state where we might need to wait to learn the results because, like Arizona and Pennsylvania, the state won't count mail-in ballots until after Election Day. So wait, if that's what Arizona is already going to do, then why does handing in your mail-in ballot in person on Election Day create a new system Adrian Fontes. And it's odd that they're saying you can't count the ballots until after Election Day. You can't count the ballots until Election Day. There's no after there. That doesn't even make sense. Senator Ron Johnson is facing Democrat Mandela Barnes. While Johnson is led in recent polling, Wisconsin is a potential pickup opportunity for Democrats. You see that? So that's why they need more time. That's why the Washington Post needs to set up a scenario where you can expect the results to take more time, because this is a 
potential pickup for Democrats, which only means they believe they've already purchased this election and put enough election fraud in place to take the election away from one of the country's most popular Republican senators in Ron Johnson. Again, Wisconsin is one of those states that wasn't even close in 2020. It should not have been close. Courts have ruled that multiple elements of Wisconsin's 2020 election were conducted unconstitutionally including the hundreds of thousands of ballots that were moved through illegal drop boxes. On Tuesday, Johnson declined to say whether he would accept the election results if he loses. I mean, is something going to happen on Election Day? Do Democrats have something up their sleeves? He said our colleague Annie Linsky reports Nevada traditionally counts its votes extremely quickly. But Nevada voters and candidates on the ballot can request recounts. And if the outcome is as close as the polls are, a recount is possible. Isn't this amazing? All of these scenarios are premised on polls. And the polls, as we know, are not accurate. They should not be presumed to be accurate. And they should not affect the thinking of anyone in terms of how the final election results will play out. Recall in 2020, there was a poll in Wisconsin, an ABC News poll on Election Day that said Donald Trump was expected to lose by 17 points. But we can expect the results to be delayed based on how they're interpreting the polls that they pay to create insanity. Other states that take time to count include California, Oregon, Alaska, and Maine. Although only Alaska has a marquee Senate race, and it won't determine Senate control because Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski is facing off against another Republican, who they don't even bother naming. Her name is Kelly Shabaka. But the Washington Post doesn't want you to know that because Lisa Murkowski is already bought and paid for. The little R next to her name means absolutely nothing, but she is still the choice of the uniparty establishment. So naturally, she is the choice of Jeff Bezos's Washington Post. Alaska and Maine have ranked choice voting. In Alaska, many people in remote areas vote by mail and the results won't be available until November 23rd. The concept of Election Day is a bit of a misnomer. Norm Eisen, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, who tracks election denial. They also left out the word said again, somehow. But here's the thing. The Brookings Institution is as commie as it gets. And Norm Eisen is literally the person who has written the playbook for color revolutions. That's who the Washington Post is quoting here. And if you want to know more about Norm Eisen, go back to Revolver.News, September 9th, 2020. Meet Norm Eisen, legal hatchet man and central operative in the color revolution against President Trump. And that, of course, is Darren Beatty. That is the man the Washington Post turns to for election analysis. Who won't accept the results? In addition to potentially delayed results, some Republican candidates up and down the ballot have refused to commit to accepting the election results as if committing to accepting the election results is something that candidates must do. This is a struggle session, and they try to have this struggle session whenever they can. There is absolutely nothing that says candidates have to accept the results of fraudulent elections. 
Democrats say that a candidate rejecting an election result means little if the process is legitimate. Still, Democrats have invested heavily to ensure challenges are adequately litigated. So once again, there is the setup for Mark Elias and his colleagues to wage lawfare to ensure that the fraudulent results cannot be overturned. They are telling you exactly what they are going to do, just as they always tell you what they are going to do. They are waiting for the child brains and for anyone else reading this to shrug and say, okay, I get it. Maybe the election results are going to be a little delayed and then they'll just ignore it forever. And when someone says, Hey, isn't it weird that the election results haven't come in? They'll say, (laughs) no, that's not weird. Don't you read the news? We've known about this for a long time because they're the smart ones. Secretary of state, Steve Simon of Minnesota, a state familiar with recounts is running for reelection against Republican Kim Crockett, who has not committed to accepting the election results and has called herself the election denier in chief. She said she was joking and she's also obviously joking. She's making a play on the ridiculous term used to discredit people who are challenging election results that are the product of overwhelming and obvious fraud. But the Washington Post and Democrats are very triggered by it. So they're pretending that she wasn't serious about it. The joke was making fun of them. They're framing it as she's just kidding. She doesn't really want to be known as an election denier. He said her position won't have a legal impact, but could be problematic. It does worry me that she would not accept the result, not only in our contests, but in other contests and would peddle disinformation as a way to discredit the system as a whole. Simon said in an interview. Oh, Simon says the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee announced more than a year ago it was spending $10 million to defend the vote, a program to ensure access to the polls and fight attempts to invalidate any votes. And the Democrat Congressional Campaign Committee said it has hundreds of people on the ground inside voting locations and a large scale program to cure rejected ballots. You got that? They're making sure that every vote counts, even if the vote is illegal. And if the vote is removed because it's illegal, they have a massive effort there to fix the vote on behalf of the voter, often without the voter's knowledge, you know, to protect the voter. A spokesman for the National Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee said it has worked closely with the Republican National Committee to build out an extensive Election Day operation program and that they'll be prepared for anything. Cisco Aguilar, the Democratic nominee for Nevada Secretary of State, who is also running against a candidate who has not committed to accepting the election results, says he has full confidence in Barbara Chagavsky, a Republican who is the current Nevada Secretary of State but that the key is to win by as large a margin as possible. And the Washington Post is happy to accept that explanation and the framing that the Democrat has a chance to win by a large margin. We understand the political environment. We are not naive about it, Aguilar said. But there are race election lawyers that are being engaged through Nevada Democratic victory to ensure we are able to deal with every potential situation on election night to post election. So essentially, every place that the Democrats believe they can still produce enough fraud 
to win. You just have to accept that those races could take a really long time and it won't indicate that anything's wrong. It'll be the process working perfectly. And as soon as the process finishes working perfectly, whenever that is, you'll be alerted that the process has worked perfectly and you're not allowed to challenge it. If you do, there will be any number of communists repeating the slogans about why you can't. And they'll be the smart ones because they read this article in the Washington Post and they knew that it was going to take this long. So your objections are now irrelevant because they have read an article. Do they know anything at all about how elections work? No. Do they know anything at all about the election fraud that occurred in the 2020 election? Also, no, they have never bothered to check these things at all. But they know that the Washington Post has said everything's okay. Therefore, everything is okay. One place where you probably won't be able to talk about it is Twitter. Despite all of the fanfare and aplomb from last week, including a healthy amount of optimism by me, Twitter does not seem to be any more geared toward free speech than it was a week ago. Everyone who has signed into Twitter in the last couple days has very likely seen this notice, which goes out to everyone. It's a cute little graphic, and it says it takes time to count all the votes. It's expected to take multiple days to count the votes, so the projected winners of some elections might not be announced yet. This means you could encounter unconfirmed claims that a candidate has won their race. And then they have a little option just below to find out more. And another one that says, learn how voting by mail is safe and secure. The Carter Baker Commission report that was released, I think in 2005, said decisively that voting by mail was the least secure method of voting. But now the regime is telling us that voting by mail is very, very safe and secure. But let's talk more about Twitter's free speech issues. As we discussed, the regime began melting down immediately after Elon Musk took over. They began freaking out about hate speech and they began a campaign to convince advertisers to stop advertising on the platform unless Elon Musk would still censor the no-no people. Yesterday, there was an open letter to the CEOs of Amazon, Anheuser-Busch, Apple, Capital One, CBS, CenturyLink, Coca-Cola, Comcast, Best Buy, Disney, Google, HBO, IBM, Merck, Meta, Mondela's International, no idea what that is, PepsiCo, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, and Verizon. Dear CEOs, Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter came with his promise to advertisers like you that the social network would not transform into a free for all hellscape and would remain warm and welcoming to all. But beware, Musk's promises in no way accurately portray his plans for Twitter, nor are they a reflection of the evolving reality of the platform as it transforms by the minute under Musk. If Elon Musk follows through with just a fraction of what he is already committed to doing, then Twitter will not and cannot be a safe platform for brands. Urgent action is needed by advertisers. And you know what? Just to give them the slightest amount of credit here up front, maybe it won't be 
a safe platform for brands. Maybe brands shouldn't be advertising on a platform that guarantees free speech. Maybe free speech and corporate advertisements don't mix. And that's just fine. It's not like the advertisements are serving some sort of public good. If Elon Musk is honest about his intent with Twitter, and there's reason to believe he's not, but if he's honest in saying that he's not there to make profit, well, I guess you don't need the advertisers. It's honestly better if he just runs the platform on the money the platform can generate from its users. If users find it valuable, then they should pay for the service. Among Musk's first act as owner was to spread a dangerous conspiracy theory about a violent attack on the husband of the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. He also fired several top executives, including Vidya Gotti, Twitter's head of legal policy, trust and safety. Within 24 hours of Musk taking ownership, the platform was inundated with hate and disinformation. And of course, they're talking about some study that studied bots saying the N-word, and now the platform is filled with hate, and it's filled with disinformation. The White House, the illegitimate White House, is already getting fact-checked because of the disinformation they're spreading. Twitter has been spreading disinformation the entire time. It's just coming from the mainstream media and Democrat politicians. Not only are extremists celebrating Musk's takeover of Twitter, they are seeing it as a new opportunity to post the most abusive, harassing and racist language and imagery. This includes clear threats of violence against people with whom they disagree. We're talking about a platform that has allowed the Ayatollah to stay on, that allows terrorists to stay on, that allows the outlet The Root, an outlet completely devoted to black on white race hate to stay on there. There have been active anti-white hate campaigns on Twitter this entire time. Anti-male campaigns, anti-cisgender campaigns, anti-heterosexual hate campaigns. They don't care about any of that. They only care about hate campaigns, in quotes, against their protected classes. And they consider anything that disagrees with those protected classes or mocks or ridicules them in any way to be a hate campaign without deliberate efforts by Twitter to address this type of abuse and hate. Your brands will be actively supporting accelerating extremism. And by the way, you got to remember extremism is people like us. It's not BLM Antifa planning out which cities to burn down. It's us talking about election fraud. Additionally, he has threatened to drastically reduce employee headcount, putting those responsible for maintaining community standards and protecting user safety first on the chopping block. Musk has also publicly supported the idea of restoring the accounts of prominent individuals Twitter had suspended for inciting and glorifying political violence, spreading election and covid related disinformation and abusing people based on their race, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age or disability. Those are all the same things you see. Making a joke about trans activists is the same thing as inciting and glorifying political violence. Of course, every instance they point to of political violence doesn't actually happen to be political violence and no one's actually glorifying it. We're actually just dissenting from the official story. If people are actually inciting and glorifying violence and their speech conflicts with the law then there is a solution for that that doesn't require 
Elon Musk deciding which viewpoints to censor. Your companies are Twitter's 20 largest U.S. advertisers, spending hundreds of millions of dollars each year. Your posture and response to Musk's plans during this moment matter for your brands. And it's nice that they pointed this out because that means that these companies have been the most supportive of the censorship regime. We, the undersigned organizations, call on you to notify Musk and publicly commit that you will cease all advertising on Twitter globally if he follows through on his plans to undermine brand safety and community standards, including gutting content moderation. This means that Musk must not roll back the basic moderation practices Twitter already has on the books now and must commit to actually enforcing those rules. So everything has to remain the same for Elon Musk as it was before. They don't want the platform to change at all. They're mad enough that Musk has it already. He's not allowed to change it, even though it's now his. You see, they can't go off and find another platform because they know tribal social isn't going to get them the results they want. Not enough people will go on that site and they don't care about free speech. They care about controlling the public conversation. It's not good enough for them to have an open free speech platform. No one on our side is asking for any of the communists to be censored ever. I would be more than happy to compete in a meritocracy of ideas in an open marketplace of ideas with the communists. Get rid of all the algorithms, the censorship algorithm, the promotion algorithm, all of it. I am more than happy to compete in that space. Not a single one of these communists is. They want to control the conversation in full. That's what Twitter exists for. That's why these companies advertise on it. We know that brand safety is of the utmost importance to you. As such, you also have a moral and civic obligation to take a stand against the degradation of one of the world's most influential communications platforms and to hold Musk to the pledge he made to you to ensure that Twitter is a welcoming and civil place for everyone. And as you might imagine, the people writing this letter imploring World Economic Forum aligned companies to pull their advertising from Twitter are global communist funded organizations. Media Matters for America, the Center for American Progress, the Center for Countering Digital Hate, the Center on Race and Digital Justice, the Dangerous Speech Project. Their entire project is based on violating the First Amendment after deciding what speech they think is dangerous. Doctors in Politics. Friends of the Earth, GLAD, Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, Muslim Advocates, the NAACP, the National Center for Transgender Equality, a group called the Real Facebook Oversight Board, and the list goes on. Type any of the names of these organizations into the search bar on InfluenceWatch.org and see who their funders are. These are the global communist organizations telling the global communist affiliated corporations what they need to do. And what they need to do is remove their advertising from Twitter. The letter is simply a middleman. The letter is a PR stunt. They are writing to themselves. Both the recipients of the letter and the senders of the letter are aligned politically in every possible way. 
And knowing that those two groups are basically on the same side of things, to say that they are having an effect on Elon Musk might be giving Elon Musk too much credit. It would be better if we simply knew that Elon Musk wasn't on the same side of things. And right now, there's not really any indication that that's true. This morning, the head of Twitter safety and integrity, Yoel Roth, quote tweeted a woman named Renee DeResta in a tweet that no one can really even see anymore. It's been limited so that people don't get upset after seeing it. But Yoel Roth said, we're staying vigilant against attempts to manipulate conversations about the 2022 U.S. midterms. Read on for independent analysis of our team's work. And the analysis, of course, was done by Renee DeResta. And Elon Musk responded to Yoel Roth's tweet, and he wrote, talk to civic leaders. And he lists Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL, the president of the NAACP, the Bush Center, and many others about how Twitter will continue to combat hate and harassment and enforce its election integrity policies. Twitter will not allow anyone who was deplatformed for violating Twitter rules back on the platform until we have a clear process for doing so, which will take at least a few more weeks. Twitter's Content Moderation Council will include representatives with widely divergent views, which will certainly include the civil rights community and groups who face hate-fueled violence. Does that sound like someone who's committed to protecting free speech? Or does that sound like someone who could have written that letter I just read himself? It's beginning to seem like this Elon Musk thing is either a failed experiment or a sick joke. Darren Beatty responded to all of this. Darren Beatty of Revolver News. This is the current head of Twitter safety and integrity, referencing Yoel Roth, citing Renee DeResta. It turns out DeResta's name is associated with one of the most explosive and aggressively covered up influence operations of the century. It gets even darker. And there's a long thread from Darren Beatty. I'm going to share that with you. Of course, DeResta was pleased with banning Trump, but that's par for the course. Tip of the iceberg. He has reported extensively about DeResta. He says this is DeResta's dark Alabama secret, and he cites a piece of his reporting. There is one very important secretive malign influence operation that Renee DeResta failed to disclose to the Senate. This influence operation was conducted by her own employer, New Knowledge, to influence the outcome of the 2017 Alabama special Senate contest between populist Roy Moore and Doug Jones. The details of the influence operation are even more scandalous in what even the head of new knowledge described as a false flag operation. New knowledge conducted a secret influence operation to make it look like populist candidate Roy Moore was the beneficiary of a secret Russian influence operation. The New York Times, of all places, broke the story of this remarkable and now forgotten scandal. You cannot make this up. And the current head of Twitter's safety and integrity under Elon is favorably citing her work. He says, Elon, you're slipping and cites more of the revolver report. So let's get this straight. Renee DeResta, who makes a living researching so-called Russian disinformation and influence operations and who testified before the Senate regarding such, was caught red handed acting as an advisor, if not participant to an influence operation designed to discredit an American politician by planting false stories that he's the beneficiary 
of a Russian influence operation. Rather than bow her head in shame and find a new career, perhaps joining disgraced Nina Jankowicz's wizard rock band, DeResta shrugs it off and goes on to work in a senior role for the company most closely associated with the influence operation in which she played a part. In fact, the new knowledge false flag influence op was so disgraceful and embarrassing that even DeResta's fellow disinformation commissars had to disavow and distance from it. Even my colleague, Dan Freed, who, after helping to create U.S. sanctions policy against Russia, decided on a second career as a disinformation commissar, had to condemn the false flag op by DeResta's group. And he links to the DeResta piece in Revolver.News and says many, many more dark details about DeResta here. And that's the person Twitter's head of safety and integrity is citing and referencing that she has the good information about why Twitter needs to continue their censorship efforts in the same way they had them going. And of course, people have scanned Yoel Roth's Twitter timeline, gone back to find some of his political opinions. He has just a litany of posts talking about how bad white people are, particularly white men. And he also has a real brilliant one from January 22nd, 2017, that says, yes, that person in the pink hat is clearly a bigger threat to your brand of feminism than actual Nazis in the White House. You got that? The Trump administration represented actual Nazis in the White House. The administration that's there now, who's funding actual Nazis in Ukraine, they're no problem. And this is the guy Elon Musk has left in place at his job. Elon seems to be supporting him. Now, I've been talking about this today on social media. I think that this is a debacle. Elon Musk is talking about how it's a good thing that both the left and right are mad at him. That's crazy. First of all, it's not about left and right. One side is in support of censoring well more than half the country, while the other side simply doesn't want to be censored. There's not two sides of this where the solution is to find a point in the middle that'll make both sides a little mad. The communists are mad at everything that does not permanently support its agenda. All we are asking for is not to be oppressed. We are asking for the most fundamental human right as laid out in the First Amendment of our Constitution. It is a birthright. There's not some compromise position here. And for saying this, people have told me that I need to be patient, that there's all sorts of very complicated things with the machines, and it's going to take some time. Well, then, if that's the case, Elon Musk should say that his attempts to open up the platform are being thwarted. Maybe there's something in the code. Maybe he can say, hey, we're working on this. It's going to take a little time, this particular thing. But that's not what he said. He said it's going to take weeks to figure out who to allow back on the site, which means they are committed to not allowing people back on the site until they have fully reviewed it. That's not a technical problem. It's a political decision. If there is a technical problem, he should say there's a technical problem. You all are coming back, but this is going to take a little while to unwind in terms of code and other things. And so maybe then people will be more inclined to be patient. But he's not saying that he's saying the exact opposite. He's saying that this is what he's intending. And still, I'm being told to be patient. Why? 
We don't need to be patient while Elon Musk decides whether or not to restore our most basic civil right. This is the reason why we lose. This is just complete complacency. It's nice to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, but why do we have to just continue doing that forever while the country burns? Elon Musk is not Donald Trump. Elon Musk has never done anything to prove that he is a good-hearted, good-faith American patriot. He has never done anything at all to prove that. He makes electric cars and flamethrowers and rocket ships. He talks about Neuralink and AI. And I'm sorry to say it. I know people are fanboying Elon Musk, but it's quite possible that he's just a technocrat globalist like the rest of them with a better sense of humor and a million kids. And while we're being patient, the communists are still on the march. This is from Vice today. Members of Twitter's Trust and Safety Council, not sure Elon Musk even knows they exist. Members of Twitter's Trust and Safety Council, a group of 100 organizations working on issues including harassment, content moderation, and suicide prevention on the platform, say they're unsure about their future and if Elon Musk, who took over Twitter last week, even knows they exist. Isn't that great? A hundred organizations get to constantly weigh in about who Twitter needs to censor. Now I feel like we're in a different universe. Danielle Citrone, vice president at the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, told Motherboard. Citrone said that despite one of the council's regular meetings being on the calendar, her organization hasn't heard from Twitter and said that Twitter staff seems to be ghosting them on updates. Is the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative a World Economic Forum partner? Yes, in fact, they are. You can find them at weforum.org slash organizations slash cyber hyphen civil hyphen rights. Isn't that incredible? Bloomberg reported on Monday that most people who work in Twitter's trust and safety organization are locked out of their access to internal tools used for content moderation and are currently unable to alter or penalize accounts that break rules around misleading information, offensive posts and hate speech, citing anonymous sources familiar with the matter. Musk's first act as new owner of Twitter was firing its top executives, including CEO Parag Agrawal, CFO Ned Siegel, policy executive Vijay Gotti, and company general counsel Sean Edgett. Vijia worked closely with the council, according to Citrone. Oh, that's so great. Are we to take from this, by the way, that the organizations associated with this council are the ones telling Twitter to censor? where one of those organizations, the only one they've listed so far, is affiliated with the World Economic Forum? Is this a conspiracy theory? Obviously not. It's just a system. You can see the structure of the system. You know the results the system is intended to produce, and the system does in fact produce those results. There is no conspiracy theorizing necessary. This is just what it does. The same way that Elon Musk says he's going to produce electric cars and then he owns a factory that produces electric cars and what comes out electric cars that spontaneously explode. 
Musk has said that he wants to form his own content moderation council with widely diverse viewpoints. Musk tweeted last week that no major content decisions or account reinstatements will happen before that council convenes. On Wednesday, he tweeted that he'd talk to people at the Anti-Defamation League, Color of Change, and the NAACP, among others, about how Twitter will continue to combat hate and harassment and enforce its election integrity policies. After Musk's takeover of Twitter, the platform saw a surge of hate speech, according to Twitter's head of safety and integrity, Yoel Roth. And they have a little chart that shows the spike in slurs. But what's a slur? It's anything they want it to be. Where all of this leaves the existing Trust and Safety Council is unclear. Twitter did not respond to a request for comment about the status of the council. I sadly am not sure Elon Musk knows about the existence of the Trust and Safety Council as of yet. Alex Holmes, deputy CEO at the Diana Award anti-bullying campaign and a member of the council, told Motherboard, the Twitter Trust and Safety Council is a dedicated and passionate global group made up of unpaid representatives from NGOs, safety, hate speech, and free speech experts who are there to be critical friends. We have often given our advice on upcoming products, tools, updates, safety issues. We are not an oversight board and not involved in any moderation decisions. Instead, supporting a safe and healthy platform, which is inclusive of all. These communists talk like robots. The Diana Awards partners are major global corporations and major social media platforms, as well as the UK's Department of Education, another globalist organization just complaining. Twitter formed the Trust and Safety Council in 2016 as a new and foundational part of our strategy to ensure that people feel safe expressing themselves on Twitter. Oh, a convenient reason to censor people during the 2016 election cycle. I get it. According to its announcement, with more than 40 organizations and experts from 13 regions making up its inaugural members, the council held its first annual summit the following year at Twitter's San Francisco headquarters, where then CEO Jack Dorsey participated and heard presentations from members. There are currently 100 organizations representing five different focus areas, content governance, suicide prevention, child sexual exploitation, online safety and harassment, and digital and human rights listed on the council's website. Well, hey, they're for censorship and they leave child porn on the platform. So they're not doing a very good job. It's almost like they're there to do something else. And they're focused on the content moderation part. I felt very plugged in. Like I could always go to Vidya, Citroen said. It felt really responsive, and it's so good to know that somebody at a World Economic Forum affiliated organization can go right to the top of Twitter's executive structure to get things taken down. Emma Yanso, director for the Center for Democracy and Technology's Free Expression Project and a member of the council, told Motherboard that her organization hasn't heard anything from Twitter since late September. And let's check and see who the Center for Democracy and Technology is. We've talked about it before. The Center for Democracy and Technology is a center-left nonprofit founded in 1994 that advocates for internet privacy, net neutrality regulations, and transferring governance of internet domain names away from the United States to an international body, among other issues. Its largest donors include major technology conglomerates, including Amazon, Google, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft. 
Left of center foundations, including George Soros's foundation to promote open society, the Ford Foundation and the MacArthur Foundation have also contributed to CDT. Isn't that fantastic? At what point have we gone through this process too many times? It is always the same people. They are always doing the same things. And the mainstream media just takes whatever they say and quotes them in their articles to support the conclusions that they already support. From my experience, the council members are all really dedicated to trying to help Twitter be more responsive to abuse and more transparent and fair in how they enforce their policies, Yanso said. But that's not true. They're not fair to an entire side of the political spectrum, a full majority in America at this point. And they don't care about those people at all. They don't care about fairness. They care about pushing one viewpoint that they claim represents minorities and the most vulnerable. Hey, everybody, if you are able to be censored and you have no recourse, you are the most vulnerable. There's still a long way to go, but Twitter staff have made a continual effort to improve the experiences of its most vulnerable users. It's hard to tell exactly what Musk's plans are for trust and safety work at Twitter, but it's disconcerting that he talks about taking the company in a different direction. There's no such thing as trust and safety work. This is an idea the communists came up with within the last few years. There is nothing essential about their work. Before his takeover of the company, Musk frequently complained about what he saw as the platform's lack of free speech, but has only defined his vision of free speech as that which matches the law, he wrote in a tweet in April. And he's not matching the law. The platform is not headed in a direction that will match the law. He is specifically saying that he is unwilling to match the law until he takes weeks and months to decide how that will be done. Now, again, I'm not upset that these people are upset. Maybe that says something good about Elon. But if that's the case, he really does need to start speaking out about it. I don't think he's about free speech. I think he's about free speech that I like, Citron said, as a person who is literally about only speech that she likes. Twitter has always had major flaws in how it's handled issues of privacy, safety, and user trust. It's been widely criticized as reluctant to solve the issues of hate speech and trolls while rolling out features no one asked for. Hate speech is not a real thing. Hate speech is in no way similar to trolling. Even if hate speech was a thing, if I accepted their definition of hate speech, that still has nothing to do with trolling. Trolling can be done without any hate speech. Trolling can even be done without humor and an occasional mean streak, but it shouldn't be. The council itself accused Twitter of not listening or being responsive enough in 2019 in a letter to Dorsey obtained by Wired. But even with its existing issues, disbanding a group that's been doing years of work and safety at a critical moment in the platform's history would be a mistake, members of the council say. Yeah, that's like when Twitter's employees said it would be a mistake for Elon Musk to fire them. It's not a mistake. It's only something they don't like. It would be a shame to see the work and passion of this global group disbanded. And I am hopeful there is a way to continue to work with Twitter under new direction, Holmes said. If Twitter dissolves the council, 
I worry that could signal a retrenchment by Twitter as far as seeking outside expertise and a decision to deprioritize critical trust and safety work, Yanso said. Twitter needs to have some process for engaging outside experts and perspectives in order to better inform its work. And again, that just simply isn't true. They don't need any of that. All they need to do is understand which content is illegal and eliminate that and leave everybody else the hell alone. And no, we don't need to be patient with any of this. The midterms are next week. The platform is specifically geared toward disinforming the public about these elections. It says it on the front page. The media organizations and the blue check accounts Twitter promotes are pushing election disinformation. They're doing it intentionally and knowingly. And there is no reason to give any of them the benefit of the doubt. There is no intelligent person who could possibly have checked on whether or not the 2020 election was stolen from the very smallest local races all the way up to the president of the United States who would not realize that it was. If people are shadow banned and censored and suspended and removed for stating that obvious truth, which everyone in power who has checked certainly knows, then it's not free speech. And Elon Musk needs to be helping or he's simply just hurting. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!